Proust had his madeleines. Marie Antoinette had her cake. But if there's one item of food that defines this era and a generation of millennials, surely it's this. Avocado, we love it. We love avocados. Now what we want is a little welcoming party to the chicken and the veg once we've grilled them. But how much do you know about where those avocados come from? This young man who died, it's alleged that he was beaten to death. The story goes that he was stealing avocados. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, avocados and the trail of violence at the Kakuzi farm. A warning. This episode contains some descriptions of violence, including sexual violence. It's actually quite hard to take in the scale of it at first. That's Emily Dugan. She's the social affairs correspondent at the Sunday Times. You come out of Nairobi on the main highway, you drive north for about an hour, and then suddenly you're in what I would kind of describe as Kakuzi country. A few months ago, Emily travelled to Kenya to investigate strange reports around an avocado farm called Kakuzi, a farm that's ultimately owned by a British company, the Camellia Group. Everywhere there are signs relating to Kakuzi. A butcher, a timber yard, a pack house. It's vast. It's the size of Greater Manchester. You know, it's 54 square miles of land. Because it covers this huge area, we're not talking about a wilderness. This is actually a relatively built-up area. The town of Makuyu is on that land. You know, you've got a Kakuzi football pitch, a Kakuzi dispensary, a petrol station. And then obviously all the other ordinary things like schools, police stations, they're all on that land. So it's all very interspersed with the community. It's important to get a sense of the scale of Kakuzi and the land that they occupy, because it's only then that you can understand why it would be so easy for members of the community to find themselves inadvertently on Kakuzi property. They go to their water sources on Kakuzi land or a footpath that takes them to school. It all is very intertwined. Now, you may be wondering, what was it that compelled Emily to travel all the way to Kenya in the middle of a global pandemic? I'd seen uh, some initial court papers about some pretty horrific human rights abuses happening on the plantation. And the Kakuzi plantation matters. You may not have heard of it, but it actually features in most of our day-to-day lives. This is the farm that supplies so many avocados to the UK. Pretty much every supermarket has been supplied by Kakuzi at some point. Wow. And until our story, Tesco, Sainsbury's and Lidl were all using them. Avocado. It's on everyone's tongue. Crab and avocado wraps are one of my proudest party pieces. Try adding sliced avocado to your eggs benedict for an Easter weekend brunch. It's delicious. It's healthy. Kakuzi was listed as a supplier to Marks and & Spencer's and Tesco's back in June. Waitrose used them until 2017. It's delicious, nutritious and affordable. So what is there to lose? Yeah, I mean, if you like avocados, you've probably eaten one from Kakuzi. I mean, it's a pretty major supplier. Not only were there these horrific human rights abuses that were alleged at this farm, but it's a British-run company and it was supplying avocados to meet our insatiable avocado habit. 79 Kenyans have launched a legal claim in the High Court in London. 
there are allegations of a whole range of human rights abuses taking place between 2009 and 2020. The allegations are that 10 women were raped, that a 28-year-old man was beaten to death, allegedly for stealing avocados, and that dozens of people, mostly local villagers in the area, were badly beaten. The allegations specifically relate to the behaviour of the security guards who protect Kakuzi, and that's no small task. Even just one hectare of avocados is worth £27,000. So Kakuzi argues that they need to protect it, that there is a, you know, a risk of theft. But what is alleged to have happened is that these security guards have taken it into their hands to act with great brutality when they find people trespassing on the land or even just collecting firewood. You know, that seems to be quite a recurring theme in a lot of the allegations that particularly women would be collecting firewood. And we're talking about twigs that are rotting on the ground and that they would be attacked by guards. And often a lot of the rape stories come back to women caught collecting firewood. And the allegation is that the guards then said, Will you pay me money? No. Okay, then I get to do what I want. God, that's horrendous. And what sort of stories did you hear when people did come out to meet you? What sort of abuses had been going on? The kinds of assaults we're talking about are extreme. I mean, there was one case that really stuck with me of a mother who said that she had been watching her cow and it had, it had strayed onto Kakuzi's land. What you're about to hear is Emily interviewing the woman at the heart of this case via a translator. Me, um, I believe something happened to you um, with the Kukuzi guards. Can you tell me what day that was and what happened? It was around 3pm on that day. I was going after my cow. It had gone into Kakuzi in search of a bull. Because Kakuzi also, I should say, it's not just an avocado farm. They farm cattle and uh, timber and macadamia nuts and blueberries and all kinds of other stuff. And her cow had strayed towards a bunch of, of Kakuzi's cows, essentially, in search of a bull. And the cow was on heat. She said it was on October the 29th, 2018. So really not that long ago. And she, she went in to get this cow, asked the herder. I told him that I wanted my cow. Yeah, mommy, I'm mad. I was with my son who was around 18 years. And then suddenly she said that um, a security guard came up to her and told her it was his time to feast on me, was the words she used. The guard told me that he had admired me for so long and I had now taken myself to him. So it was his time to feast on me. The guard followed her and raped her. She said she, he used the wrap she was wearing to cover her face and her son, her 18-year-old son, was just a couple of metres away. She said he was sort of screaming in protest and then after that, the herder then raped her and they tried to make her son also rape her. Oh, God. The guard pushed my son and told him to also take his son that he should know where he came from. My son refused to take his son, as he had been told. I don't know how he did it, because after that, even sitting down was a problem. I could not sit down for two weeks. I mean, by any counts, just a horrific account. And she, you know, she was quite a shy lady. It took a lot, I think, for her to, to say this stuff. And she, you know, she's very softly spoken. You could see just talking about it took it out of her. But she, she really wanted... I think, and this was kind of common to a lot of people, that they felt they wanted 
this to be heard, they didn't feel that they could get much redress in Kenya. And that's why they wanted to bring a case in the UK. How was she coping? Despite being softly spoken, I think she was a very strong woman and I think she'd found a way to cope. But she said in the month afterwards, her kids had to do everything for her. You know, they were doing her cleaning and washing and everything. And And from what you say, I mean, her case isn't a one-off. Just going back briefly to the lawsuits, I mean, there are 79 claims in the lawsuits. 79? Coming all the way up to January this year. And it appears there may be more beyond that too. I spoke to one man who was actually still in hospital the last time the lawyers came out on a visit. He doesn't form part of the case, but he has a story about Kakuzi, which again chimes with a lot of the others. His name's Kennedy Masyoki, and he's a young man, you know, he was kind of in a baseball cap. He seems like a kind of a young man with his life before him, yeah. for want of a kind of better phrase. And he said he was cutting grass for his cow by the side of the road in a village called Ndune Dune, which is again connected to Kakuzi land. <laughs> I was cutting grass for the cow and then um, I was approached by Kakuzi that. This was 11 in the morning and he said that three guards came up to him drunk and picked a fight with him and he said that they were beating him on his head, on his back. They tried to drag him onto Kakuzi land through a gate. They said they wanted him to go inside so that they would have a reason for doing what they wanted to do and told him that they wanted to cut him up and and throw him into the river. What I thought, um, I thought they wanted to kill me. That's all I thought. He says one of them took a panga knife, which is like a machete, and hacked into his arm. They very nearly severed it, and he said that at that point they scarpered. Okay. Um, he's saying that it happened so fast. They are pulling him, they are beating him, and then the children are not screaming. And then he was cut, and immediately they left him. So all he remembers is that he fainted. Yeah. And then there were people around who took him very fast to hospital. But, I mean, he ended up in hospital for three months. He very nearly had to have his arm amputated. I keep asking myself, why did they cut me? Why? I had not done anything. I had not stolen anything. I feel a lot of pain and a lot of anger. Press releases from Kakuzi PLC in the wake of this Sunday Times investigation argued that Kakuzi is a proudly Kenyan company with majority Kenyan shareholders. So why are lawyers from Lee Day representing claimants in the High Court in London? The company that owns Kakuzi, or rather it has a 50.7% share, which means it has a controlling stake in it, is Mm. the Camellia Group. And this is a British company which is based in Maidstone in Kent in a very grand stately home called Linton Park. It's a massive company. Um, It's got farming interests in India, Bangladesh and Malawi, and it's highly profitable. Camellia and two of its British subsidiaries are being sued because... Lee Day argues that they run these companies effectively, although Camellia say that Kakuzi is a, is a Kenyan enterprise. So they're keeping it at arm's length. Yeah. Is there any evidence to suggest they knew what was going on? Well, Camellia shares executives with Kakuzi. There are people who sit on Kakuzi's board who also sit on Camellia's. And 
there were warnings. You know, the UN wrote in 2018 that there were credible accounts of abuse happening at the farm. The Ethical Trading Initiative, which is the industry body that works with supermarkets to kind of ensure that the supply chains don't have these issues, they were talking to Kakuzi back in spring last year. Of course, Camellia would have known in 2019 that these allegations were there because that's when they were first given a, you know, kind of an indication that there was a lawsuit on the way. And yet the allegations are that these abuses continue to January this year. The lawsuit, brought by Lee Day, argues that the Camellia Group was negligent because it managed Kakuzi closely and executives worked for both companies and would have been aware of the incidents of human rights abuses. Yes, it's it's Camellia Group and its British subsidiaries because Camellia PLC doesn't actually have any employees. Right. And they own this 50.7% stake. And if you own a 50.7% stake in a company, you have control of its board. And that is what they own of Kakuzi. The day after we published our first story, Kakuzi took out full page adverts in the Kenyan papers saying it was a proudly Kenyan company that acted on behalf of its mostly Kenyan shareholders. And while it is true that most of its shareholders are Kenyan, its biggest shareholder is is British, is Camellia, which is has more than fifty percent of the shares. So the controlling stake in, in Kakuzi is is British. Yes. And I understand while you're out there, you actually spoke to some of the people who work for Kakuzi too. Yeah. What did they say? Well, I spoke to two current security guards there who very bravely came and, and spoke to me. Both of them have worked there for more than a decade. And they said that they did feel that these kinds of incidences were becoming more common, that, that in recent years it, it had got worse and that they felt that there were occasions where guards used violence when really they didn't need to. I mean, one of them said that he'd personally seen somebody beat somebody to unconsciousness. One of them talked about a culture where after a big operation, for example, if there'd been a protest or a big incident, that there was a culture of people coming back and boasting um, about the violence in an attempt to kind of impress bosses. That's interesting. Did you get a sense from them of what it was that was going wrong? Why, why is there such a, a high incidence of violence there? For some context, in Kenya, I think, you know, it is normal for security guards to be armed in some way. But... This trend that alleged victims are kind of finding is that there does seem to be a lot more violence and that the guards were saying that it does seem to have changed in recent years, that the culture among the team that may have encouraged violence. So, for example, if you take the case of these twigs of firewood, they say it was a direct command from a manager that they should arrest local villages and hand them over to the police, even if they're just collecting these kind of twigs on the ground. Which can't be a crime, surely. Well, they... Because it's on Kakuzi land, one could argue that it's theft or trespass. But when you're talking about rotting twigs on the ground, it does seem like, like it would be a relatively small crime. And one of the guards said, you know, sometimes we find ourselves in a dilemma because this person is a neighbour and has not cut any trees, just collected twigs that are rotting away. But that if they don't act on those kind of cases, then they risk losing their jobs. And the, the guards that you spoke to, I mean, how did they seem to you? Did they seem quite aggressive? Or no, they like? the two that I spoke to, didn't seem that aggressive but then perhaps you know they were a slightly self-selecting group because they wanted to speak out about this they were at pains to say you know that they hadn't used this kind of violence they saw us as a problem at the farm but I suppose their point was it wasn't necessary for this to have happened We'll have more from Emily and what she found on the ground at the Kakuzi plantation 
in just a moment. But if you want to access more original investigations and get to the heart of the stories that matter, do think about subscribing to The Times and The Sunday Times. Help support investigative journalism. If you subscribe today, you'll enjoy one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It does sound like a very aggressive atmosphere there and it sort of sounds terrifying, to be honest. What was it like for you going out there and reporting on it? I mean, did you ever feel like you were in danger? Um, I wouldn't say grave danger um, at all, but there were there were moments mm. where it, it, it felt a bit uncomfortable. I had some late night emails from a man who was doing some consultancy work for them who had heard that I was meeting people and sent a kind of late night email with my number plate in it asking why I wouldn't speak to him. Oh God, so he knew your number plate and how you were travelling. Yes, he'd, he'd followed us earlier that day. And did you see him following you? Yes, we did see that that was happening. We did realise that he'd... I was in the middle of an interview in a car because that had been the, the best way to have a bit of privacy right near Kakuzi's land. And we were in the middle of this interview when they looked around and said they'd seen him. And so we drove off and he followed us on a motorbike all the way to the main road before giving up. So, yeah. That must have been quite disconcerting. (laughs) It was. And also when we, after we'd been reporting in the area, and in fact, um, the photographer Tobin Jones was taking pictures on the Saturday before the first piece went out. He was going around Kakuzi Farm taking photographs and somebody from the community had very kindly offered to show him around various spots. And then the day after when our piece was published, the police were questioning the man who showed him round and there was stuff on Twitter with details of the police report saying that we were coaching people to talk ill of Kakuzi. After her first story, Emily received an affidavit which is a sworn legal statement. Two days before the story was published, the first story, we got sent an affidavit. It was from somebody saying that they were one of the claimants in the case and that they had been told to fake medical records, that Lee Day had told them to invent the claims, essentially. It was a very oddly phrased affidavit that included huge sections praising one particular man. It's not like any affidavit I've ever read. We read it and thought it was a bit peculiar, but obviously, given the seriousness of the allegation, we wanted to look into it. Lee Day flatly denied it and had some fairly good explanations as to why it was not believable. So it didn't affect our reporting that week. But I did, of course, want to look into it when I got to Kenya. And I finally tracked down the man in the affidavit. And it was extraordinary. He he couldn't read English. So he claimed that he had signed this document without being able to read it or understand it. So when we translated what the document said, he was so shocked because he thought it had been about withdrawing the case against him in Kenya over whether or not he'd stolen firewood. So he was sort of tricked into signing it? That's what he said, yeah. And do we know who approached him? Yeah, so it all comes back to a man called Andrew Thuo, who was actually originally hired by Lee Day as a temporary staff member, and he did six days' work for them at the start of the year. Thuo was employed to facilitate meetings with people who'd already made themselves known or expressed an interest in bringing a case. And... They didn't take him on because they found him to be unreliable, uh, they said. 
And now he's been working for Kakuzi as a consultant. And the allegations are that he's going out into the community and trying to find people who are part of the Lee Day case, telling them that their case has been dismissed in the UK, that it's been thrown out, which of course it hasn't, and taking them to Kakuzi for them to settle. That's uh, alarming. (laughs) I mean, he of course denies this. He denies the allegations and Kakuzi and Camellia say he's not an employee of theirs, though they they do acknowledge he is a consultant as a community liaison. And the the man who was tricked into signing this document, when you spoke to him, was was his story believable? Did he seem credible? Very. I mean, before I showed him the affidavit, I actually just got him to go over his story and how he first spoke to Lee Day. And you know, he he gave a lot of detail about what he said had happened to him. And it completely matched the original claimant statement that Lee Day had put through the courts, which I had a copy of. He runs a guest house. And he said that Kakuzi and police came to his guest house, accused him of stealing firewood and beat him and two other men so badly that to this day, he says he struggles to use his left leg and it's very sore and the cold. He, he had a very credible account. And, and you know, his reaction, once we translated the affidavit, you know, it was pretty clear that, that he had no idea what was in that document. And so, I mean, if, if, as his reaction would imply, if there has been some misleading or bad behaviour by Andrew Thuo, have you gone back to the company, to Kakuzi and, and Camellia, and asked them about it? Yes, um, and they're taking it very seriously. I mean, they've reported the allegations of, of witness intimidation and of lying about the case. They've reported it to the public prosecutor in Kenya, who is apparently starting to look into it. So there are investigations in Kenya, but Emily's report had an immediate effect in Britain too. In fact, the day the piece was published, on the Sunday, Tesco announced that they were going to stop using Kakuzi until they were satisfied that there'd been more investigation. And then later that week, Sainsbury's and Lidl also said that they were going to put on hold any work with Kakuzi until more investigation was done. And as the supermarkets pulled out, around the same time, Kakuzi and Camellia spoke very differently about the allegations. I think initially, Camellia's point was emphasising that this was a Kenyan company and Kakuzi was quite robust. Their most recent statements suggest they are taking it all very seriously. Well, it's massive. I mean, I think you have to be careful not to be too simplistic about this because, you know, on the one hand, it's it's a big deal, the supermarket's pulling out and it's a sign of how seriously they're taking this. But actually, it's not necessarily the best outcome for the supermarket's to walk away. This is a farm that employs 3,000 people in the area at a time when everybody's economies are suffering. And I think the hope is, and certainly what the Ethical Trading Initiative is working on and what Kakuzi and Camellia now say they're working on, is that they act on this, that they make changes and that the farm can function without these allegations of violence. And Camellia is now in the early stages of talks with Lee Day about the possibility of settling the case. These are catastrophic allegations. And I think, you know, you've got to hope that, that they would change things to make guards more accountable, to to make sure that, that this this doesn't happen again. And then, of course, I think the, the really important thing is that those alleged victims that have come forward, that they are given proper redress for what has happened. One of the things that's been happening over the last few weeks is that people have been approached about settlement And our understanding is that the the, the sums offered in these settlements were around £1,000, which when you're talking about potentially rapes and serious assault is not the sums that you would normally be considering. And what are they saying? 
What are they offering to settle? <laughs> well, it's very, I mean, it's more talks about talks at this stage. We don't have details of what any settlement might be, or even if a settlement is realistic, because there's every chance at the moment that it will still go into become a long and protracted court case. The tone of what's being said by Kakuzi and Camellia uh, has changed significantly. I think they said they were shocked to the core at what has been alleged and they are urgently looking into it. They are putting in place a whole load of changes to try and address this. So they're going to have a drop-in centre in the community where people can come and talk about concerns. They're going to look again at their human rights policies, training of security guards and even at technology as well and how that can be used in their security. So no, they are taking it very seriously now. On a personal level, you know, you've been out there, you've you've seen so much, and you've heard some very harrowing accounts, you've you've been followed while covering the story. What's it been like? It's it's been one of the most intense stories I've reported on. I don't know that's partly because of COVID as well, because ever since coming back, I've been quarantined. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, it's. It's, it's a privilege to get to meet people in these situations because it, it takes a great deal of bravery to speak out uh, against a, a company of this size. For families affected by something like this, you just you just desperately want to be able to tell their stories and get them out there because one of the things that's happened with the coronavirus is that every story in the newspaper, it can feel like sometimes, relates back to the virus. And I think we have to remember that some pretty horrific things are still happening all around the world that have nothing to do with COVID. And I think for the families involved in these cases, they just want to have a sense that anybody is listening. And it's a privilege to be able to help them achieve that. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, social affairs correspondent for the Sunday Times, Emily Dugan. You can read more of Emily's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers today were Leona Hamid and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you can, please do leave us a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or on the Times Radio app. We'll be back with more tomorrow. Do listen in. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.